All right. As you get resettled, if you want to go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 8, Psalm 8. Um, we have been on this journey um, for eight weeks now um, of walking through the Psalms, and um, personally, it's been great for me. Um, it has been encouraging to my spirit um, right on time, I guess, and when made the decision to walk through the Psalms the way we are um, each summer, starting in one and just working till we finish, um, there were a few times that I questioned myself on that, um, because some of these early Psalms are pretty challenging, um, especially um, as starting points into a series like this, but I'm very grateful um, that God led us down this path. And, and to see how he has um, especially worked in my heart. And now today, as we get into Psalm 8, um, which is one of my favorites, I am rejoicing in the work that he is doing in this series. In Romans 3, Paul writes that, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the, the thing about that is the word all. That none of us escape that condemnation. We, we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. No one person escapes that. We are all children of wrath. We're all destined, if you will, for eternal punishment. But as Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy has loved us unimaginably. But the thing is, because of our sin nature, we all have a tendency to be self-centered or to be self-focused um, in, in a way to where even if we realize it or not, our, our thoughts and our, our lifestyle and everything begins to, to paint this picture of the world, the universe revolving around us. Every decision that we make is best for us. Every um, move we make is best for us. Everything we calculate is all based on my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, ultimately. And the thing is, is by doing that, what we're doing is we're elevating ourselves up to the place of where God should be. Because everything in our life should not be revolving around us, but it should be revolving around God himself. Because we're not the center of the universe. We're not the captain of our own souls. God is. And what we find in Psalm 8 is this beautiful hymn that David has written to lead us in worship as we extol the greatness of who God is. Which is why he says, how majestic is your name? And this morning, as we look at Psalm 8, we're going to look at the majesty of God. So far, there have been times of, of trouble and, and doubt and all of these situations that David has been facing. And he's, he's writing these hymns to, to worship God and to praise God and to be thankful to God and to cry out to God for the different seasons of life. And here in Psalm 8, it's simply just really a doxology. 
to worship the greatness of who God is. And to be honest, we don't know the exact timing of when David wrote this, but it really doesn't matter because it is proclaiming the goodness and the greatness and the majesty of God. And the main idea for Psalm 8 that we will be looking at today as we work through these verses is the majestic God and creator of the universe is a loving and caring father. And I'm going to read these nine verses for us and I want to pray for us before we begin to unpack this text together. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Geteth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, that is such a glorious promise to your people. That you use the weak to display your strength. That you, every moment of every day, for all of eternity, put your glory on display. And so, Father, as we work through this text, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to a place where we are constantly crying out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we ask your blessing on the reading of your word this morning. We ask that your spirit would speak through your word. That it would penetrate into the very depths of our souls. That our eyes would be lifted To see Christ, a glorious King. We pray, God, that you would use this time to glorify yourself, but to bring joy to your people as well. We give thanks for your word, and we give thanks. For your grace. We ask that you would be with us now. As we work through this text. That it would renew. 
our minds and our hearts. That it will encourage those who need encouraging. That it will challenge and bring conviction to those who need challenging and repentance. That it would make much of the name of King Jesus. So that we're not thinking about the busyness of our upcoming week. So that we're not thinking about lunch. So that we're not overwhelmed with the decisions we have to make and the upcoming days, but God, that we would be focused on one thing, the majesty of who you are. That we would be so moved by the truths of your word that we have no other option but to worship and to leave here today in worship as we are constantly reflecting on the greatness and the grandeur of God. So we ask that you would speak through your word this morning, Father. That the Holy Spirit would proclaim to us your message. God, I pray personally that you would just mute me. So that the truths and the word proclaimed this morning would be your word, not mine. And that we would honor you with a, our time, and our hearts, and our worship. Because you are more than worthy. And it's in your most glorious name that we pray. Amen. Again, Psalm 8. A psalm meant for worship. The first point that we come to in Psalm 8 is that God is glorious. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right off the bat, if you are, your, your Bible, the way you're reading it is like mine, it starts with four words on the very first line, O Lord, our Lord. And if you notice, they're different. One is all caps, one is just capital L. And the reason for that is to declare even more by using two of the names of God meant for God to show His grandeur, to show His majesty. The first in all caps is the, ter the term in the Hebrew, Yahweh. The Israelites' word for God, name for God, that was so holy to them, they were not going to speak it. They would write it, but they wouldn't even speak it. It is the covenant God, the great God, the creator God, the highest name attributed to God. And then the second is Adonai, Lord, a king, a governor, a ruler. And here we find David using both of those again to display the greatness of God. As the sovereign, sovereign covenant creator God, but also our governing king. 
to cover the whole spectrum of how majestic God is. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In doing a little digging, that word majestic could actually be translated in many ways. Not just a few. Sometimes a word can be translated with one or two options, but this word in Hebrew for majestic could be translated in multiple ways. Excellent, glorious, famous, high, mighty, wide, great, noble, splendid, magnificent, just to name a few. And he's speaking to the greatness of who God is. He's speaking to the glories of God's character. How majestic is your name. He is majestic. He is glorious. He is splendid. He is magnificent in his character. He is great in all he says. He is glorious in all he is. He is magnificent in all he does. O Lord, our Lord, O God, our King, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. And you have set your glory above the heavens. God has put his glory on display in the works of creation. Again, for us to, to think that we are the center of everything is just foolish. Especially when we begin to gaze at God's creation. And it can be as simple as looking at plants. It could be as simple as looking at Structures such as mountains or canyons or rivers or oceans. Or you could go even further and just look at, an earth, at the earth in its entirety. Or even step further back and look at our galaxy or the solar system or even further. And it is just pointing more and more and more to the greatness of who God is. His glory is on display in creation. And as vast as the universe is, and as beautiful as the creation of God is, it only speaks to a portion of how mighty and how glorious He is. And yet we try to put ourselves right in the middle of that. That we are some magnificent, worthy people that God should bend over backwards to appease when we are just a blip in the magnificence of His creation. And what we find here in Psalm 8 is that it is a call for God's people to enter into worship as we ponder the glories of His work. Because maybe, unless I'm mistaken, you did not make yourself wake up this morning. You didn't make your brain start functioning this morning. You are not making your heart pump blood through the rest of your body right now. You're not making your lungs come in and out, filtering fresh oxygenated blood through your body and allowing you to breathe. You're not doing that. God is. 
I am not really a science person, um, but I'm going to take a stab at something that one of my chemistry professors told me at college, but I was fortunate enough to have a chemistry professor who was a super godly man, and um, I took chemistry during the summer, so we had a really small class, and it was a very intimate setting, which I was very grateful for, but um, we were talking about um, just plants in general, um, and how in God's wisdom, plants are primarily green, and he began to explain that it is the absolute perfect color for plants to allow us to live. If they were any shade um, darker or lighter, either way, or any different color, um, it would not produce the right amount of oxygen or, or whatever. And, and so he was saying, even in something as simple as vegetation, God is putting his glory on display. Um, in our church, we have been fortunate enough to see baby upon baby upon baby born here, and to see the God-given gift of life is just God's glory on display. And all of those things should just drive us to worship God as we gaze on His glory. So God is glorious. But secondly, God is also powerful. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. See, again, regardless of how much we think of ourselves, we are absolutely powerless without God's working. We, we don't want to think that way, and our nature tells us otherwise, but verse 2 is reminding us that God is working, and He's working using the weak to show His strength. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. So He takes the weakest of beings to show His strength, to steal the enemy and the avenger. God is powerful. God is all-powerful. And not only is He all-powerful, but His power and his, is all-sufficient for everything we need. And so for the people of God, we must, in humility, learn to rely on God as our only primary source of strength. As we talked about last week, especially men, we have this tendency to try to put the world on our shoulders and go about it without God's help. And we fail. And when we fail, we dive into this, like, this pit of, of helplessness or hopelessness. But the truth is, is that we can't do this thing alone. We need God moving. We need God acting. We can't do it. He does it. Paul touches on this a little bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's crying out to God to take away the storm that is in his flesh. And God responds, verse 9, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am 
strong. God uses the weak to display His greatness. He is powerful. God is also sovereign. Look at verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Think about that. That God who has created the vastness of the universe... We can't number the stars. We, we don't even know much past our own galaxy. And the God who created all of those things loves us and he cares for us. For us, we should be reminded of our weakness in comparison to who God is as we gaze at the work of his majesty. Some want to try to twist that and say that if God is so big and we're so insignificant, then why would he love us? And really, they're asking a really valid question until we begin to understand the truth of who God is. It's not a negative thing that he's so majestic and that he would love. It's actually a glorious thing that he's so majestic and yet he loves. That's why Romans 5 eight is so powerful. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, infinite, holy, majestic, glorious, perfect, without sin, loves the weak and gives himself. But notice here in verse 3, he says, When I look at your heaven and the work of your fingers, several commentators pointed out that when he uses this terminology of of fingers, it's to show the might of God. Not that he's banging, using a mallet to mold things into shape, but it's the delicate nature of using fingers to shape. It's like a potter creating a vessel. If you go in there and you just start like, you know, pounding, like it's going to be this really nasty lump, but it takes delicateness. It takes artistry. But it also shows the magnitude of how great God is that he only needs his fingers to create what we can't even fully comprehend in the universe. So when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? Because creation itself is this magnificent display of God's might. What is man? In, in light of who God is, we are so small, so weak, really insignificant, yet He loves us greatly. And He cares for us deeply. And the truth is that God is sovereign and majestic, yet He cares deeply for His people. What is man that you are mindful of him? Look at verse 5. 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Again, even more in our weakness and in our powerlessness. We have been given such high regard by the Father. In no other culture or no other religion are you going to see where God is giving His creation such a high standing as to be crowned with glory and honor. What a gift. Again, by using the weak to display His strength, God is showing His sovereign power. He goes on, he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God in his sovereign rule has placed man in a higher position in order to have dominion over creation. And only an omniscient, sovereign God could do that. Have you ever built something or made something or crafted something that you felt you poured your heart and soul into and let somebody else be responsible for moving it or or transporting it and you were just absolutely terrified? Because they wouldn't care for it quite like you did. Now, imagine that to the nth degree, right? God creates this beautiful place full of wonderful things. And he allows us to have dominion. What is man that he is mindful of him? But he also goes on, he says, but what is the son of man that you care for him? You know, there's actually a reference to this in the book of Hebrews. And it's referenced in relation to Jesus. That God would become the God-man in the flesh. That Jesus was God incarnate. He would come, but he was made a little lower. And even Jesus refers to this. That, you know, even though I have all right to be equal with God I count that is nothing that God would come in our form to cover our sins again displays his goodness it displays his majesty it displays his sovereignty I love what A.W. Pink says. He says divine sovereignty simply means that God is God. You know, we, we get really bent out of shape when we talk about God being sovereign because in our flesh we want to go against that. We want to be the center. We want to be the sovereign. We want to be in control of as much as possible. But ultimately when it boils down to it, it's God who is God and we are not. 
again. Yet you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. But all of that is because it's been given by God. You know, we might be tempted to read that and say that I have power, but if you notice, we have been given dominion. We didn't earn dominion. We didn't obtain dominion on our own. It was given. Which is simply an act of grace that God would allow us to rule and to do these things. So we should care deeply for the things that God has placed in our midst. All remembering that God is glorious, that God is powerful, that God is sovereign. But also that God is supreme. Look at verse 9. David returns to his opening line. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's a beautiful thing that is happening in Psalm 8, kind of behind the scenes. As David writes, he, he talks about the, the majesty of God and the glories of his name and his character. And then he shows God's power and, and his majesty in creation. And then he begins to point to God's glory and majesty in the creation of man. Being kind of building upon this idea that God's creation of man, even though as weak and as helpless and as powerless we are, he would give us this rule and this reign, this ability, even though we are fallen creatures and even though we are marred by sin and constantly make mistakes, but to show his grace, to show his power and to show his glory, he allows us to reign, all to come full circle again to show the greatness of God, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. This isn't like David just sat down and scribbled some words on a page. This is deep worship being played out through the hands of God moving through him. To show the supremacy of God in all things. And it's a reminder for us that it is God and God alone who is to be praised. Because He alone is worthy of our worship. You want to know what makes the heart of people change? It's the greatness of God. You want to know why so many people think so little of the church and of Christianity today? Because there is far too little of God in His churches. We're not declaring the glory of God. We're talking about how we can be better people or how we can be happier or we can be, you know, more moralistic. And, and this is a sad reality that covers all spectrums. I'm not just talking about like left churches. I'm talking about all churches, right? I mean, a couple years ago, me and Allison were looking um, at Lifeway of all places, you know, that's supposed to be our place, right? Um, for children's curriculum, and we couldn't find any. Because everything we found was all talking about how to be more moralistic people. How to have good manners, how to have do, do this, and how to do this. But no, we need to be taught what it means to be people who see God as God. 
I've heard it said from tons of different preachers, but good theology leads to doxology. Good theology and a right understanding of who God is and and what God does and how God does it leads us to worship. And that's what Psalm 8 should do. It should drive us to worship God. As we begin to understand His majesty, as we begin to understand His greatness into relation to our finite, weak, created nature, we should be led to just unending worship. Simply God is God, we are not. The thing about it is, as we talk about the greatness of God, in His creation, we talk about the sovereignty of God in His creation. We talk about the power of God in His work and in His plans. But if we only stop, if we stop right there, then we've only hit part of the glories of it. Because there is another step. There is another portion that should push us even further into worship. And that is even though we are fallen human beings and God is holy, that He loves us still. Not because we're worthy of it. That's the mystery of the gospel. Why would a holy, righteous, just God, love the unlovable. It's grace. It's beauty. It's the majestic God and creator of the universe being a loving and caring father. the prodigal son. We fall, we run, we stray, we fail. And he never leaves and he never forsakes. All the while anticipating our return And leading graciously all the while. Again, it's a right understanding of the majesty of God that should be leading us to transform lives. Not moralism. None of that. It's God. You want to know why some people seem to be lit ablaze for the gospel of Christ? It's because they have experienced the greatness of who He is. If our lives are not utterly and drastically changed, have we truly met Christ? 
I told you when I was, I've told you before, and I'll say it again, but when I was a youth, we went to a camp, and I remember very little of the camp. Um, I just don't have that kind of memory, but I do remember one of the nights Johnny Hunt from First Baptist Woodstock was preaching, and if you don't know who Johnny Hunt is, he's like this fireball preacher, like American Indian descendant, like will just go on and on and on. He sets the world ablaze. I don't remember much of what he said except four words, no change, no Christ. If there's no change in our life, then there's no Christ in our life. Because when we come face to face with the the glories of who God is and the work that he has done through Jesus, then our lives have no option but to be radically different. And, and And I want to be careful in saying what I'm going to say because there's such a fine line between living under grace and living as legalist, right? Because... In our culture, we want to say we want to live under grace, but basically we look no different than anyone else, right? But then if you go too far with that, then all of a sudden you're legalist and you're like not living under grace at all. So you're not trusting in the work of Christ. You're trusting in the work of yourself and your lifestyle and keeping all the boxes checked in the correct manner. And so there's this really fine line to where we have to be careful to not cross one way or the other. We, we walk that line trusting the grace of Christ, but also believing what we hear in James, that faith without works is dead. So we're radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus so that we can radically live for Jesus. And we get to that point by understanding the greatness of who He is. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all of the earth. Again, God is the creator and sustainer of all. And He willfully chooses to use us for His purposes. So our lives should be lived giving thanks to our majestic King. And and to be lived for His glory above all. Why? Not to earn his love, but because he's already so freely given it. We don't live for the glory of God to receive the love of God. We live for the glory of God because he's already given us his love through Christ on the cross. You want to know radical change? You want to know life change? You want to know salvation? You want to know joy, true joy? It comes in trusting the work of Christ. In Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father. I'm not exactly sure why. But you're very good to us. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people. Who. Are moved. To worship. Because of what you've done. What a joy it is to be called and set apart by you to do your work. But even more, what a joy it is to know that we are loved 
by you. The creator of all things loves us. And he loves us enough to give himself for us. So Father, may we be set ablaze by you, for you. That we would trust in the work of Jesus. And Father, I know that there are people here who have not fully surrendered to you. And, and maybe they don't realize it. Maybe they've grown up in church and they've played the church game and they've said the prayers and maybe they've even been baptized and, and served and given, but they've just never really trusted in the saving work of Jesus. God, I pray that you convict them of that. And that they would learn to trust you and, and turn to you to find salvation and joy. Because you are a good father. And God, I pray that for those of us here who are Christians, who have a tendency to forget how good you are, that we would constantly be reminded of your majesty. That we would worship with every ounce of our being to the glories of the name of Jesus.